own way or do we share it with another it's an interesting question isn't it because it's a moment by moment question there are moments that we sneak back things from him we need to come under the guidance and the uh, of the, the word of God and uh, the conviction of the spirit of God to consider and of course we're given the scriptures we're given the old testament and the new testament to give us pictures of people's struggle to truly allow god to have his own way and what he desires is for us to be in full submission to be growing into that transformed from glory unto glory as paul says in second corinthians 3 18 we're going to share, we're on the second week of a short summer series. Short has got extended because this passage had too much in it. So uh, we are actually going to, Heather and I are actually going to uh, Tasmania on the 5th of February to take mum, uh, Heather's mum over to a nursing home. She's in late stages and needs more care and wants to be back in Tasmania. So we're going on that date. So I... Scott was going to preach on the 4th. I'll be preaching on the 4th now. Scott will do the 11th and David will do the 18th. We'll be back on the 16th, but I've also got the prophecy group meeting on the 18th, so it worked out well, and I'll be doing some work uh, while I'm over there as well. Zephaniah is all about the day of the Lord, and this section that we're going to be looking at from chapter 1, verse 4, through to chapter 2, verse 3, although we only make it to verse 13 today, but I'll read it all to you, is about judgment on Judah, the southern kingdom. We'll explain that as we come through. Okay, well, actually, I'll use... That's old habits. You don't need to use that. Okay. Zephaniah 1.4 So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. And those who bow down on the housetop to the host of heaven and those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom and those who have turned back from following the Lord, and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him, be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. And I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold, 
who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, there will be the sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become like plunder and their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses but not inhabit them and plant vineyards but not drink their wine. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation, without shame. Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like chaff. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord. All you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. That was what you wanted to hear this morning, wasn't it? A day of gloom and darkness, of death and destruction. But it may not be what we want to hear, but it's what we ought to hear in terms of God has warned us in the scriptures. Zephaniah is heralding that, that the day of the Lord, a day of judgment is fast approaching. A near, there's a near fulfillment for Judah and yet a far fulfillment at the end of the days before the coming of Messiah. Before resuming his message of judgment against the nations which we looked at last week, Zephaniah pleads with Judah to consider her ways and repent before it is too late. The prophecy was given approximately between 635 and 625 BC. And the near fulfillment for Judah, that is the southern kingdom, would eventually take place in 585 BC. Israel, 
the northern kingdom had already been in captivity since 722. When Judah was taken into captivity in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. As David Barker in the New Bible Commentary says, though all creation will suffer, Judah and her capital city, Jerusalem, are singled out. They, God's covenant people, have willingly pledged themselves to him and therefore have a greater responsibility. Jesus says in Luke 12, 48, but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. There's a, there's a picture of accountability for what we do know, and what we have uh, ascribed to. Josiah had sought to bring reform and a focus on God and true worship, which was partially successful. But people were still turning to false gods and idols. In 2 Chronicles 24.18 we read, They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols, so wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this their guilt. In 1 Kings 9.9, And they will say, because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and adopted other gods, and worshipped them, and served them, therefore the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. In Amos 2.4, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishments because they rejected the law of God. God's own people in Judah and Jerusalem are the focus initially, certainly, but it extends to the nations as well of the coming judgment. Now, these two messages this week and next week cover this passage in this outline. Oops, I missed, uh, forgot. And they have not kept his statutes. Their lies also have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. Now in verses 1, 4 to 6, we're going to cover the cause of why God has to judge uh, Judah in this way. And then... Uh, in verses 7 to 13, which we'll finish with today, but we'll cover the course of his judgment, the path of it, exactly how it's taken place. And by the way, this is probably the first time in a long time that I've alliterated. I don't make a habit of it, but uh, you'll see we did. Consequences in chapter verses 14 to 18, and they just get darker and darker as we go. But we must never forget, as we said last week, the, the picture of the wrath of God doesn't mean any. you've got to put it with the love of God. They're two sides of the same coin. He loves us so jealously that he will judge to preserve that which is righteous in us, that we might know the best experience of knowing him. And so there is the call uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. We're going to start with the cause in verses 4 to 6. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. As John MacArthur notes, the Lord narrowed his words of judgment to focus specifically on Judah. 
specifying the causes of judgment as apostasy and idolatry, which are always coupled with moral and ethical corruption. You walk away from the word of God, it leads you down a path uh, of moral corruption. Some of the people thought they could worship the Lord and idols at the same time, just as the people of the northern kingdom of Israel had done, and others just rejected the Lord completely. The first listed is Baal worship. And by the way, I don't know whether you remember the opening of the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham two years ago. What did they have in the parade? A big bull, similar to uh, the worship of the Baals. A lot of people commented on it at the time. I think I may have even mentioned it in the in a message at that time. We, we're on a society that's heading back to the paganism uh, of the past. And certainly the consequences of paganism have been ever-present in, in society that rejects the ways of God. This is in-your-face idolatry. Baal, the, the title literally means Lord or Master, is the title commonly designating the Canaanite storm god, Hadad, whom Israel was prone to worship. Another uh, study Bible says this, Baal, which means owner, master, lord or husband, is a general name for the Canaanite de deity believed to control fertility and agriculture, beasts and mankind. That's why he's depicted as a, as a bull with, and with goat head and so on. Sculptures depict him in a human figure with a helmet adorned with the horns of a bull, the symbol of strength and fertility. And this was a constant source of temptation to Israel. And Israel struggled. But by the way, the church is not pure either, is it? We have to watch constantly for the ways of the world and the values of the world being integrated and coming in and influencing how we do what we do, uh, both uh, corporately and individually. In Jeremiah 7, 9, Jeremiah cries, Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Thomas Constable says God promised to cut off the remnant of Baal worshippers who remained in Judah or perhaps in the temple as well as the priests of Baal, but also notice it was the unfaithful priests of God or of Yahweh. The second group is astrology and those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven. They're worshipping the sun, the stars, the moon... Astrology was common among the idolaters of Judah. In Jeremiah 19, I haven't got it here yet. Jeremiah 19, 13, the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the king of Judah will be defiled like the place Topheth because of all the houses on whose rooftops they burned sacrifices to all the heavenly host and poured out drink offerings to other gods. It was carried out on the flat housetops to afford a clearer view of the sky and chiefly by altars for burning incense. And God warned them repeatedly, but they rebelled. 
Interestingly, Thomas Constable notes that this superstition persists today among believers in horoscopes, the star signs, and, and the, as though they control things. The next one is in, in five, verse, the second part of verse 5 is syncretism. And those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. As David Baker notes, the uh, syncretism or mixing religious systems was another problem. What is strongly condemned is mixing worship of the true covenant God of Israel with that of another deity. Swearing by another God meant acknowledging his authority, something which was denied to Israel. The people mixed worship of the one true God with what was not worthy of worship. Now, Milcom is also, in some of your translations, uh, translated as Moloch. There's a, there's a Hebrew word study that, that, that explains the connection there. Moloch was the god of Ammon, of the Ammonites. And as John MacArthur knows, due to syncretistic worship was reflected in the practice of swearing by the Lord and at the same time by Milcom, who may be either the Ammonite deity of 1 Kings 11.5 and 33, or Moloch, the worship of whom included child sacrifice, astrology, and temple prostitution. Vernon McGee says, the thing that undermined the nation of Judah is that they pretended that they were serving the living and true God, but they were giving themselves over to Moloch idolatry. As well, verse 6 says of apostasy and those who have turned their back from following the Lord. There were some who had at first heeded Josiah's call to repentance and who had sought a time for a time to obey the voice of the Lord, but putting their hand to the plough, they looked back and relapsed into their old, idolatrous ways. You see, to follow the Lord is to keep the statutes of the covenant, so to turn back is to desert the Lord and violate the covenant. In Isaiah 59.3, it's associated with rebellion, hypocrisy, treachery, and deceit. We read, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. People who for a time have sought to follow the way, but have turned back. And the other of which we may well be guilty if we're not careful, is simply apathy. And those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. You see, there were others that had never known nor cared to know the mind of God. All must perish in the common destruction that was coming. You know, I, I was thinking about this during the week. One of the things that I've noted over time as we follow uh, the history of modern Israel is... If you go back into the 18th century, etc., um, secular Judaism, when you take God out of the, the, the quote, and yet you have the cultural remnant of God's influence upon a people, what you're left with is to try and be good people. And so they tend to be drawn to the left, to socialism, uh, many of the Jews were involved in the early movements of communism. 
uh, in today, one of the big, just before October the 7th, there were all these marches, all these protests going on. It was the, the left in Israel, the secular left, that, you know, were wanting to appease the, the, uh, the, the Arabs. Many of those have begun to change their mind because of what happened on October the 7th. <laughs> uh, but, but when you remove God from the equation and explanation for your goodness, human goodness, all you're left is, is humanity. And you, you notice that in the fields of um, psychi psychiatry and, uh, and uh, the two that go together there, um, yeah. Uh, sorry? Psych Psychology and psychiatry, yeah. Many of them are Jewish. People of Jewish backgrounds, and it's not exclusive, but very strong influence. In fact, Freud, of course, was a, was a Jew, a secular Jew. And so there's this tendency to try to be good and well-meaning without the relationship with the God who you were created to be with. And there's a great struggle, and that's part of the blindness that goes on even to this day. Uh, and Judah's going to face the judgment. The second aspect of this judgment is yet to come. And we know from looking at Zechariah, we were in Zechariah, and we know that two-thirds of at least Jerusalem, but two-thirds probably of the nation are wiped out, and the remnant is one-third who come to faith during that time, the rest of them that come to faith during the time. Praise the Lord that there is a work going on in Israel today where many are becoming Messianic believers and the truth of Scripture in, in its fullness is, is coming in. But you see, as one writer says, Craig, he says, it's, sometimes it's the apathetic and indifferent who are more responsible for a nation's moral collapse than those who are actively engaged in evil or those who have failed in the responsibilities of leadership. Silence, indifference. We do nothing, say nothing, <laughs> uh, and stand for nothing. That brings us to the second part, the course of the judgment, how it takes place. And verse 7 starts with, Be silent before the Lord God. He's in the courtroom. This is the courtroom of heaven. Silence in the court. Uh, I'd be interested to see how Donald Trump would handle the court of heaven. <laughs> He has no respect for human judges. He wants to argue at every point. But there comes a point of accountability whether we like it or not. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his, his guests. Similar thing is said... Uh, uh, in fact, in the view of, that, of the judgment, there's no defense to be spoken. You see, when you face the, the, the righteousness, the holiness of our God, you'll fall on your face like a dead man. For what else can you say? He is right in his judgments. In Habakkuk 2.20, Habakkuk also says, as we looked at a couple of years ago, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. 
and I mentioned previously just recently that in Revelation 6, the half-hour silence in heaven, what's that about? It's about the awesomeness of what the angels are about to see and unrolled as he releases his judgments. Silence in heaven. What is heaven normally doing? The angels are praising. But at this moment, the awe of, of seeing what he's about to bring upon the earth, the whole of heaven is silent. The courtroom is brought to silence. Yeah. Trouble with freelancing is my computer decides to turn itself off. There we go. God's judgment on Israel was viewed as his sacrifice. The guests were dreaded by were the dreaded Babylonians who as priests were invited to slay the sacrifice, that is Judah. David Baker makes this very interesting note in the New Bible Commentary in anticipation of this day. Yahweh has already personally made preparation as shown by his acts in this verse and the use in chap of uh, use of I in verses 8, 9, 12, 17 and 18. Like a priest, he has made ready a sacrificed or sacrificial feast. You, you can read it in Jeremiah 46, 10. I'm not going to read it all out to you, but... Um, he has also consecrated or set apart his guests for a special function. In a macabre play on words, one can understand the invited guests either being made ready to partake of the sacrificial feast or to be themselves the sacrifice. Those who oppose Yahweh will be offered up to his judgment. So he lists some groups. The princes and the aristocrats Verse 8, then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's son, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. Punishment will begin with their leaders. The Hebrew term used here designates city officials, provincial supervisors, military leaders, and religious leaders. These officials were especially important during the early years of Josiah's reign because remember he, be, he was eight when he became a king, so they were his guides. And he was too young to govern the nation himself. But it also, of course, potentially refers to Josiah's sons, the princes. And this prophecy was fulfilled when Josiah's sons became the victims of foreign invaders. Josiah himself is killed. And notice the reference to foreign garments. One, one note, uh, study Bible note says this, following pagan customs involved not only imitating foreign ways but also worshipping foreign gods. Leaders who should have been good examples to the people were adopting, adopting foreign practices and thus showing their contempt for the Lord by ignoring his commands against adopting the pagan culture. Now, by the way, the Islamic takeover of Europe is well underway. This week in France, one Catholic church was welcomed and opened by an Islamic prayer. And they're planning other similar events 
in, in Catholic churches throughout, but they've lost their way. Okay? And uh, these things are coming and oppressing. Um, as one of the saying goes, in recent times uh, of the attacks on Israel, first the Saturday people and then the Sunday people. Okay? God may allow these things to take place, and they are taking place in the darkest corners already, but not only, but also even in the United States and potentially here. Uh, what the mullahs are preaching at the moment is, is quite eye-opening, and uh, we need to be aware. The very dress of the royal court in this suggests that the foreign styles of clothing revealed the degree to which Judah had assimilated to foreign customs. You know, we ought to think about why do we dress the way we do? <laughs> now here it's, re- it's got a religious connotation. They're, they're dressing in accordance with the religious customs and practices. Um, but I think we, we need to think, what testimony am I giving to the nature of my God by the way I dress? It's a, it's a subtle side thought there. But Okay, the second group is oppressors, and we'll build this out as, as we come. And I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold. I wonder how many of you have a clue what it means leaping on the temple threshold. Anyone? A hand? You might have some idea. I'll explain a little bit, but even scholars don't fully know. Uh, But there is a connection and a suggestion. All who leap on the temple threshold, or some translations have over the threshold, was a pagan routine, possibly a Philistine practice, a superstition that anyone who walked on a building's threshold would have bad luck. We see it in 1 Samuel 5, 4 and 5, And when they arose early the next morning, this is God was taking down Dagon. There was Dagon falling on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who came into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So you get get that little picture. John MacArthur says this describes the eagerness with which the rich hurried from their homes to plunder the poor. And you say, how do you make that connection? Well, Thomas Constable points out that the Lord would also punish those who leaped over the thresholds of their neighbor's house in their zeal to plunder them and who filled the temple with gifts taken through violence and deceit. He suggests there are four options for understanding it, so I'm not going to go into all of that. But this meaning of the verse is hard to decipher, but the gist of it is clear enough. God would punish those who were sinning. Okay. By wrong means, by brutality because of their religious practice and belief, like the Philistines, they, they they are robbing the people around them, and you get a little bit of a hint of it in the verse. And he says in verse 10, On that day, declares the Lord, there will be the sound of the cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, and a loud crash. Zephaniah warns that the Jews from various parts of the city, from the fish gate, it's the gate through which the enemy would enter, and and by the way, is today known as the Damascus Gate, as you see there in the picture, to the north of the city. 
from the second quarter, from the lower part of the city, and from the hills, the upper part, will come the cry of distress and alarm. When walls and buildings begin to crash down and the inhabitants are attacked by enemy forces. It was probably named the Fishgate because of its proximity to the fish market. And the second quarter was a district within the city walls. You can go to the old quarter of Jerusalem today. Uh, uh, you won't be able to do much in the way of tourism if you look at any current photos of the marketplace in the streets of the old city. They're all shut up. One, because the trade of tourism has died, but also, two, because they're, they're protesting in support of... Uh, of Hamas and, and the events going on there. The second quarter was so called because it had been recently added to the city. Haldar the prophetess lived there in 2 Kings 22:14, And loud crashing from the hills depicts, depicts the resounding crash of walls and the temple raiding out, out from the hills on which Jerusalem was built. And so he says, Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. Now, the New King James translates this slightly differently. It says, Wail, uh, you inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down. All those who handle money are cut off. Maktesh, meaning mortar, in Hebrew term mortar, was a name applied to the Valley of Siloam because of its shape. It was in a district where merchants carried on business. Now, the term mortar comes about, and here's one of the Maktesh Raman, one of five Makteshes in Israel, um, in Israel's Neg. And you see its bowl shape, bowl shape, and the mortar would grind out the picture. So uh, the marketplace here was apparently in a low-lying area where economic activity took place, it was the market or business district of Jerusalem. The people of Canaan doesn't refer to Canaanites themselves necessarily, but to Jewish merchants whom God elsewhere derisively calls Canaanites because of their greed and deceit in merchandising. In Hosea 12.7, says, A cunning Canaanite, deceitful scales are in his hands, he loves to oppress. Merchants and those with money trusted in their riches. And now God promises to cut down those steeped in that kind of idolatry. Harry Ironside, a preacher from the earlier part of last century, says commerce is the bale of the hour. In the accumulation of great wealth, conscience and Christianity oppressed the wall. Gold is king and God. For gold men will sacrifice every principle, human and divine. Covetousness is the ruling passion of the age. All else must go down before it. So even in the New Testament, Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians 3, 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Now there's a third grouping that he has related to those earlier uh, classifications. He talks about the stagnant in spirit. Verse 12, 
it will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. You see, the Lord is going to carefully search among the residents of Jerusalem like one searches using a lamp. And if you think of Luke 15, 8, you have the woman looking for that lost coin. God's going to search just as, dead, uh, as systematically as that, woman, that widow did for the coin that she so desperately needed. The searching of Jerusalem with lamps figuratively declares the thoroughness of the Lord's knowledge of wickedness. He would punish the people whose love for him had stagnated like wine, left undisturbed too long and who concluded indifferently that he was complacent and would not act. Their complacency led them to believe that he was similarly complacent. But when God says, I will, I will, I will, guess what? He will. In Revelation 3, 15 to 16, he says to the church at Laodicea, this is to, the church, to a church, folks, that thought itself rich. And he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, interesting, yeah, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You make me throw up what he's saying God will show the apathetic rich how misguided they have been they have been they perverted the very theological foundation of his understanding of history that God actively intervenes in the world bringing blessing or judgment and so verse 13 says moreover their wealth will become plunder and their houses desolate yes they will build houses but not inhabit them and plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. As punishment, the means of power and position by which the sinners attained their stature will be removed. In Amos 5.11, it says this, Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, though you have built houses of hewn stone, yet you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. Gene Getz notes this in the New Testament, we have many specific descriptions of the penalty for rejecting the message of Christ's death and resurrection and for continuing in sin. What is God looking for from us? He wants us to acknowledge him and his ways not the ways of this world, not the ways of our own thinking. You know, one of the great gods that we have in our culture and our society is I. <laughs> Individualism, very much a part of Western culture. It's all about me. And uh, as that's become interpreted into our society, it's all about youth, being young, having freedom to do whatever I want to do. That's where our culture is going, the worship of self. Jesus said in John 4, 23 and 24, but an hour is coming, and now is, when true, the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit 
and in truth. In other words, it's a heart matter, but it's also a head matter because it matters what's true, what God has said. And he wants us to worship him in what he has said, not what we make or think or what the world says. He wants us to worship him according to truth, but in heart. Because we can worship him according to appearance, put on our good Sunday clothes and our good Sunday appearance, and be something else during the week. I've told you this before, but it might be some years, so hopefully you've forgotten. <laughs> but when we were in Queensland, I had a, uh, a, a tradesman come to me, a Christian tradesman from another church, and he said, uh, you know, you have so-and-so in your church who uh, is, does the same job as I do. And it concerns me that he's building a bad reputation for himself because of the way he conducts business. Just after that, I had an opportunity to talk to him and I felt burdened that I should say something to him and I didn't. And I was praying, but Lord, he needs to hear. And two weeks later, he came back to me and said, the Lord's been convicting me about, and he named the very thing. I said, thank you, Lord. I don't know whether I was a coward or whether you just needed, I just needed to pray. But he, we're to worship him in spirit and in truth. If we're doing it in spirit from the heart, it will affect everything we do, the way we conduct business, the way we carry ourselves. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Do we really love people like that? Now, don't get confused. Love isn't a feeling. In, in what Jesus is talking about that, it's an intention and an action. You treat them with love, even though they might be an enemy. Even though they're a thorn in the flesh, as it were. And God says, like to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Okay? But an hour is coming when the true worshippers will worship the Father and in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And David Baker has a very astute note. He says, as in the Old Testament, God's grace overflowed toward his people. And those who followed his revealed will, so in the New Testament, his holy wrath will not be withheld from those who turned their back on his revelation, as did the apathetic people of Judah. Even identification as his people is not proof against his wrath if there is no corresponding application of his will in life and in relationships. Peter says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? You see, we're called to be a holy people. We're called to be set apart to God, different to the world, obedient to God, lights in a dark place, And we will face the judgment of God. Now, in that next passage, in chapter 2, verse 3, there's the offer of hope. Perhaps he will hide you. It's interesting because by chapter 3, it's he will. <laughs> and we'll explain that as we come to it. 
But you see, we mustn't presume upon the grace of God. It's not that it is conditional. <laughs> His grace applies, but whether we're fully recipients of it is, is part of the issue that goes on. Now, next time we're going to look again, or come back here again, we're going to look at the consequences in verses 14 to 18. And then the call, which is a call to repentance, a call to seek God. But I hope it's made you think about your life, about the genuineness, the seriousness of being a follower of Jesus. You see, it's not about a name. It's not about being God's people alone. It's about being his people in practice, in reality, and in the heart, and in every aspect of why we do what we do, that we give him the glory. This is a serious challenge. There is a day coming where we test it. Now, if you're truly his, what isn't of him will be burned away, but it will be at great loss for what might have been if we'd been attendant to his way. Let's come to him in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, there has been in modern times uh, a reaction to the preaching of the wrath of God from a couple of centuries ago. And we cannot take a, a high and holy out thou position, for we are sinners in need of your grace. And at times, just like the people of Israel, we have erred and stumbled. But we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit in cleansing us, in awakening us, that we might walk in, in, in spirit and in truth and truly worship you and be true bearers of your name. That when the world looks at us, they, they might rubbish us, they might oppose us, they, they might even try to kill us, but they will know that they were genuine truly follow us.